Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today with Nir Eyal, the author of the book Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir's first book, is called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products, and it's become a playbook used by tech companies to build products and apps that keep users coming back for more. And there's been a lot of good that's come out of it, a lot of apps that are really trying to instill healthy habits in people. But after writing the book, he started to realize that he himself was getting hooked on some of these apps, including healthy ones like running apps and nutrition apps. And he started getting really curious about why that is and how we can kind of take back our time and especially how we can instill those skills in our kids and help them take control of their own time. Cannot wait to speak with Nir about his new book, Indistractable, and how we can teach our teens skills so that they can monitor their own technology usage, so they can set rules and limits for themselves, and so that they can learn the skill of becoming indistractable. Nir, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Indistractable is about kind of almost the opposite of your last book. Your last book was how to create products that hook users and get us stuck in this cycle of using the products more and more often. And then this this book is almost about how to overcome that as people and not get sucked in by products, especially digital products. So what caused you to think that this was the important topic? It says in the book that you spent five years writing it. So obviously a lot of work and effort went into it. Why was that? Yeah, well, I really think that uh, becoming indistractable is the skill of the century, that uh, there will be a bifurcation between two kinds of people. There will be the kind of people who allow their time and attention to be controlled and manipulated by others. And there will be the kind of people who stand up and say, no, I decide how I spend my time. I decide how I control my attention. And I will decide how I spend my life. And there is no more important skill to teach our children than this macro skill of becoming indistractable. Uh, because if they don't know this skill, they unfortunately will be in that group of people who are manipulated constantly by outside forces. And this is not necessarily a new thing. I mean, there have been all kinds of entities that want to persuade and manipulate you to do one thing or another, whether that's commercial interests or ideological interests. But I think what's changed now is that their ability to reach into your mind through the devices in your pocket has obviously uh, increased, that devices today are more pervasive and more persuasive than ever before. But the challenge, of course, is, is that we don't want to raise a generation of Luddites. I love technology, and I want my daughter to love technology because 
she needs these tools. I mean, we don't want to raise a generation of kids who are scared of technology. The, 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 their future jobs need them to be conversant with these tools. And so what I really wanted to understand selfishly was how can I become indistractable? I really felt like uh, that was a skill I wanted. And let, let me back up a second. I'll, I'll tell you about the genesis of, of why I decided to write this book. So uh, I had spent many years teaching at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. And I wrote a book about six years ago called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. And this book really explored the deeper psychology behind how products like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Slack, WhatsApp, Snapchat, how these products are designed to get you hooked. And the idea was that I wanted to steal their secrets so that product makers could use these techniques for good, right? I wanted to expose these techniques so that everybody out there building a product or service can design those products to build healthy habits in users' lives. And that's exactly what's happened in the education, healthcare, e-commerce space, all sorts of companies over the past six years have used my first book to build healthy habits in users' lives. And that's been great. And there's companies, you know, various uh, education companies like Kahoot is a company that used the hook model. They uh, recently well pub went public. It's the most widely used educational software company in the world right now. And they use many of these techniques for good. Uh, Duolingo is another company that uses the hook model, again, to teach people languages. So we absolutely can use these techniques for good. But of course, there's a flip side. And the flip side is that when products are designed to be so engaging, so habit forming, sometimes they can actually be distracting. And so that's what I found kind of happened to me at one point. Uh, I remember oh, about five years ago, I was sitting with my daughter and we had a beautiful afternoon planned and just some quality daddy daughter time together. And I remember that uh, we had this book of activities that dads and daughters could do together. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question. The question was, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that question verbatim, but I can't tell you what my daughter said, because in that moment, for whatever reason, I don't really know why, I started looking at my phone as opposed to paying attention to my daughter. And she got the message that I was clearly sending, which was that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. And she went to go play with some toy outside. And by the time I looked up for my phone, I realized that I had blown this perfect daddy-daughter moment. And if I'm really honest with you, it didn't just happen with my daughter. It would happen when I was... Uh, in the office. And I would say I was going to work on a big project. I was going to finish this proposal. I was going to finish this or that. And yet somehow 20, 30, 40 minutes later, I was doing everything but the thing I said I was going to do. It would happen when I would tell myself for the hundredth time I was going to start exercising or the millionth time that I'm finally going to start eating right. And I wouldn't do it. Not because I didn't know what to do. I mean, don't we all basically already know what to do? We don't need to buy diet books to tell us to eat right and exercise. We already know that. We don't need to buy, you know, parental uh, advice books to tell us that if we're going to be with our kids, we need to be fully present. Who doesn't know that? Who doesn't know that if you want to be better at your job, you have to do the work, especially the hard stuff that other people don't want to do. We don't need advice anymore. We know what to do. What we don't know how to do is how do we stop getting in our own way? How do we stop distracting ourselves from what we know good and well needs to get done? That is, I think, the skill of the century. And so I thought to myself, boy, if I could have any superpower, I just want this. I just want the power to do whatever it is I say I am going to do. It's the power to follow through. It's the power to stop 
lying to myself, right? Nobody lies. You know, you don't want to lie to other people, right? If I called you a liar, that'd be a terrible put down. I would never want anyone to call me a liar because we don't want to lack integrity when it comes to our relationships. So tell me, why do we lie to ourselves every day? We say we'll do one thing we know we should do, and yet we don't do it, right? And we, we yell at our kids for not doing what they need to do, and yet we're freaking hypocrites because we don't do what we say we're going to do every day. And so that's the power I wanted. I wanted the superpower of being indistractable. And so uh, I spent the past five years writing this book to dispel a whole lot of myths. I mean, you read the book, and I'm very appreciative that you did. Uh, and you, you'll, you'll have noted that it's full of overturning apple carts <laughs> from why to-do lists are a bad idea to why um, uh, most people don't know how to keep a, a schedule and a calendar to why you don't run out of willpower, uh, all kinds of myths out there that are really hurting people to the myth of probably the biggest one, that technology is addicting you, that it's hijacking your brain. Rubbish, silly, not scientific in the least. And so what I really wanted to do was to give people uh, an inside look into the deeper psychology behind why we do things against our better interest so that we can finally regain our attention to control and choose our life. Well, so in that what last thing you mentioned was one of the big kind of themes that runs through the book that I found really interesting is why, why do we get distracted? I think it's easy to blame it on, uh, well, because there's all these notifications coming in because all these networks that I'm on, I have so many emails in my inbox, everything is pinging me all the time. I'm pulled in a million different directions. But you point out that uh, distraction is actually deeper and the root cause is not really any of those notifications that are coming in or the software that we're using, but something beyond that. What is that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That uh, what you're describing is what we call external triggers and external triggers mm -hmm. definitely play a role, but it turns out that external triggers, external triggers, uh, these are the pings, the dings, the rings, all of these things in our outside environment that can lead us towards distraction. Uh, and that is a potential source of distraction, but it's not the leading cause of distraction. The leading cause of distraction has nothing to do with what's going on outside of us, but rather what is happening inside of us. These are called internal triggers. Internal triggers are uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape from. Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety, these uncomfortable sensations that we want to escape. And the icky sticky truth that we don't want to talk about is that I don't care if you get rid of Facebook, you're still going to get distracted. I don't yeah. care if you get rid of your cell phone, you're still going to get distracted. I don't care if you throw away your television set, the Xbox, the radio, and name a technology, I don't care. You are yeah. still going to get distracted unless you deal with the internal triggers. And I'm not just talking about you, I'm talking about your kids. If you want to know why we get distracted, why do we procrastinate? Why do we do things against our better interest? I hate to tell you this, folks. It's not as easy as saying throw away the technology. And you know I'm right because people have been doing this for thousands of years. Plato talked about this 2,500 years ago. The Greek philosopher talked about how back 2,500 years ago, how distracted people are. So it can't be the technology, it can't be Facebook, it can't be the video games people, people have been struggling with this for 2,500 years. It's not the technology, it's our inability to deal with discomfort. Whether it's too much news, 
too much food, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook. It is always about a desire to escape discomfort. And so if we don't deal with this fact, with this reality, that time management requires pain management. Let me say that again, super important. Time management requires pain management because when we procrastinate, it's not a character flaw. There's nothing wrong with you or your kids. We simply haven't learned the proper techniques to deal with the emotional discomfort in a way that serves us as opposed to us serving the emotion. So it kind of, um, kind of shoots down basically most of the strategies that parents tend to turn to in order to help their teens regulate technology, which is like, I'm going to turn off the Wi-Fi at a certain point. I'm going to put parental controls on your phone. We're going to have to set up rules. We'll, we'll put, I'll take your phone away and we'll put it in a charging station at night. And all these things that people are talking about and parents are talking about, you know, as I've tried everything. I've tried this. I've tried that. I've tried that. Well, there's a reason you've tried all those things and they haven't worked because they're not addressing the underlying problem. And actually, you point out on page 48 that studies show that people who believe they're powerless to fight their cravings are actually more likely to succumb to them. And I think all of these strategies that parents are trying to use are communicating the message to teens that, oh, you're just powerless to avoid distraction in this world of technology. So I have to get rid of these devices for you and put these things in place to clear the way and get these away from you because you just wouldn't be able to control yourself otherwise. And we're actually kind of, you know, without trying to, I think we're sending the message to them that these things are addicting and you don't have control over uh, your, your impulses. And we're kind of creating that effect in like a little bit of a reverse feedback loop. Yeah. And look, there, there is a place for removing those external triggers. And there's, so there's four big parts to becoming indistractable. The first step, the most important step is mastering the internal triggers. That's the most important step. And we can spend uh, some time talking about, well, what is my kid's internal triggers? What are they exactly escaping? It's really, really important to understand this. The next step is to make time for traction. Uh, and this is a really important thing to discuss real quick because I didn't understand what this term even meant, right? What What is distraction? Many people think that uh, the opposite of distraction, what they want, what they seek is focus. Yeah. But the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction, if you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction. That both traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll also notice that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. So traction by definition is any action that pulls you towards what you plan to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. So those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction is, of course, distraction. Distraction is any action that pulls you further away from your goals, further away from the things that you do with intent, further away from your values and becoming the person you want to become. So this is a really important distinction. We have to understand this because I would argue any action can be traction or distraction based on forethought, based on forethought. There is nothing wrong with your kid playing video games as long as it's age appropriate, okay? There's nothing wrong with your kid going on social media. There's nothing wrong with your kid watching a movie. Again, as long as it's age appropriate, as long as that time is planned for, okay? Part of the problem is that people Mm -hmm. 
don't understand this principle around time management, both adults and I think in terms of teaching their kids, that you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it is distracting you from. Let me say that again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it's distracting you from. I talk to so many parents who say, oh, I'm so distracted these days. I can't get anything done because my kids wanted this and my boss wanted that. And you see what happened on social media. And when I say, okay, but what did you plan to do with your time? Mm -hmm. Show me your schedule. They take out their schedule and guess what? It's blank. 90% of the time, there's nothing in their calendar. They use a to-do list, which we can talk about in a minute about why to-do lists are horrible for your personal productivity. But when it comes to, wait a minute, what did I want to do with my time? No idea. You know, there's a reason we use the same words that we use to describe money. We use to describe our time and attention, right? We pay attention. We spend time. It's just like we spend time. We pay with money. We use these terms because it, they're, they're very similar, right? We have limited supplies. And, you know, time, in fact, if you think about it, we have a, a much more limited supply. Everybody on earth has the same 24 hours. You can always go make more money. You can't make more time. And yet somehow our time, we just give it to whoever wants it. You know, yeah. like just, it's like passing out dollar bills on a street corner here, take as much <laughs> of it as you want. And so we have to teach our kids and ourselves how to plan that time. So if your kid wants to spend time playing video games, it's great, but let's plan time for it. Okay, here it is on the schedule. And, and this solves a lot of problems because then it stops the rumination cycle that so many teens face of when can I play? When can I play? When can I play? And that, that, that rumination is actually a big part of the problem. It's actually shown mm. to be the, the root of the addictive seeming tendencies. It's not the video game. It's that they don't know when they can play the video game. So they keep ruminating on it like a, a, a smoker thinking about their next cigarette as yeah. opposed to saying, okay, it's coming up at seven o'clock. That's when I get to play for an hour and a half. Okay, no problem. It's coming. I can relax. And so it's about making time for traction. That's step two. Step three is about hacking back external triggers. So back to what you were saying, some of the solution is in fact removing these devices, at least from certain contexts. You know, for example, yeah. I don't know why a teenager needs uh, to sleep with their cell phone. I don't know why a teenager right. needs to have a, a television in their bedroom. Can somebody give me a good reason why a teenager needs a television in their bedroom? Uh, and and the, this is what we, we forget when it comes to you know, the blame game around social media and technology. It's not so much the technology, people. It's what the technology is displacing. What is displacing, what it is displacing is sleep. And we know study after study shows us that sleep is absolutely necessary for proper physiological and psychological well-being. A lack of sleep will drive you crazy. It literally leads to mental illness and depression. It's not the social media. It's not the technology. It's the fact that these kids aren't getting enough sleep. And I'll prove it to you. We just had a worldwide experiment on what happens when kids get more sleep. This is what happened during COVID, that because kids weren't going to school and waking up at these ungodly hours that we make our teenagers wake up, you know, 6 a.m. to go to school, and then they go to sleep at 2 a.m. to, you know, because they just finished their homework. What happened during Corona when kids were, were homeschooling now is that they got a lot more sleep. And guess what? Hmm. Rates of mental illness have gone down, have gone down. <laughs> Right. Social media use hasn't gone down. They're using social media more than ever. Yeah, but what we're right. finding is that self-reported metrics of depression, anxiety are going down because of two reasons. Kids are getting more sleep and they're spending more time with their families. Hallelujah. Yeah. Can we stop blaming the tech? 
yeah, <laughs> and focus right. now on the real problem. So what my point is here, anything that interrupts sleep, anything that pings, dings, boops, or beeps in the kid's bedroom, it's got to go. Okay. That's not negotiable. Um, but smashing your kid's Xbox to prove a point, that's not going to work. I promise you. They're going to find another way. And then finally, it's about preventing distraction with pacts. And this is where we can actually use technology to help teach kids to manage their use of technology. I'll give you one quick example of a, of a device that uh, uh, uses a pact. There's a free app called Forest. And my daughter loves it. She's been using it for years. It's a very simple app. Every time you open the app, you dial in how much time you want to do focused work for. Let's say it's 45 minutes, an hour, whatever. You know, let's say kids doing homework. I use it when I'm doing my writing time. And I, I, I want to just focus on that one thing. Yeah. And, and this, whenever you dial in that amount of time, this cute little virtual tree is planted on your screen. And if you pick up the phone and do anything with it, the cute little virtual tree dies. Okay. So it's enough of a reminder to show you, Hey, that's not what you want to do. You made a promise. Yeah, don't kill the virtual right. tree. <laughs> very simple, very effective. It's a form of what we call pre-commitment. Uh, yeah. There's hundreds of different examples of techniques you can use, but I just want to give you kind of a taste of the four big pillars of this strategy, which is number one, we talked about mastering the internal triggers. Number two, make time for traction. Number three, hack back the external triggers. And number four, prevent distraction with packs. This is how we become indistractable. And of course, how we teach our kids to become indistractable as well. This system really is helpful for me in terms of just wrapping my head around how this all works and how you can approach getting rid of distraction in your own life. And something I found really interesting in here, you mentioned that uh, it's similar to smokers that are, you know, having cravings for their next cigarette. And you talk about a study in here about flight attendants who were either on a three-hour flight or a 10-hour flight, and they monitor their cravings for cigarettes over the course of the flight. And the patterns were totally different. Yeah, yeah. So this is this goes back to I think a lot of myths that we have around addiction, and it and it it drives me up the wall, frankly, when I hear uh, this terminology being inappropriately used. Uh, that addiction, for some reason, in society, it's acceptable to call everything addictive, <laughs> right? Mm, that somehow, yeah. uh, you know, my wife got a box of shoes from the company DSW and it had written on the side, careful, uh, addictive contents inside. Uh, or I saw a bag of chips the other day that says, caution, addictive. Uh, <laughs> you know, like we call everything addictive these days. And this is this has gone to the extreme of us calling, you know, video games are addictive supposedly. And social media is addictive, everything's addictive. Listen, folks. An addiction is a pathology. It is a disease. We don't talk about epilepsy or Tourette's uh, or, or obsessive compulsive disorder in the same way we call we talk about addiction. Somehow everything is addictive and everyone gets addicted and it's yeah, rubbish. It's right. not true. Even the people that we think are addicted to some of the most quote unquote addictive substances turns out aren't really addicted. That uh, when you look at nicotine, for example, we know that what drives the quote addiction is not so much the nicotine that actually turns out nicotine will be metabolized through the body in about three hours. So if a smoker doesn't smoke for three hours, the, the metabolic uh, symptoms of withdrawal are processed in about three hours. Okay. So they do fit a little, a little bit of withdrawal. It's apparently it's 
it's not nowhere near as big of a deal as people make it out to be uh those cravings but you do feel a little bit of like a hunger you do feel like a little bit of an emptiness when you go through those withdrawals last about three hours what really keeps people uh addicted is the psychological component of addiction it's the craving the wanting the desire that you can't scratch that itch even when you want to and the evidence part of the evidence comes to us from an amazing study that was done when they took two groups of flight attendants and uh, these flight attendants were all smokers, regular smokers. And they asked, um, you know, they, they, they asked these flight attendants to monitor their level of craving for cigarettes as they took these flights, you know, which was part of their job. One group of flight attendants was on a three hour flight. The other group of flight attendants was on a eight hour flight. And you would expect that if cravings occur for cigarettes, based on the amount of time since your last smoke, that you would expect that to happen at the same time for both sets of flight attendants, right? So let's say about three hours or so, both of them would really be craving a cigarette. But that's not what happened. What happened was that both sets of flight attendants experienced the highest level of craving, not at the same amount of time since their last smoke, but rather at the same amount of time before their next smoke. So as the passengers were getting off the plane and the flight attendants were saying, come on, get off the plane already. I want to smoke a cigarette. That's when they felt the highest cravings, right? When they were just about to get it, let me have it. And so this proves, or in science, I don't know if anything proves, but this gives a lot of evidence for this concept that that these so-called addictions uh, are, are really more about psychological conditioning than they are some kind of physiological craving. And how much of this is, is, it can be changed based on our perception of our cravings and how we deal with those, uh, those desires. And so whether it's cigarettes or Facebook or television or you name it, it's really about how we perceive that discomfort that matters. And I think it's interesting because, you know, like you mentioned, it's the same, the, the three hours was over. Um, so the same physiological uh, drive to consume more nicotine is occurring in both groups. But yet the ones who are on the longer flight are able to just ignore it um, because they know they've already told themselves, now can't smoke now. I can smoke in five hours. <laughs> you know, their brain is like set up to just okay, not right now, uh, later. Um, and I think, you know, that is like going back to what you were talking about, scheduling time for traction, um, and putting, you know, the time on the calendar to do things, I think as creates that for, for you or for your kids, you know, not right now, but I got some, I got a half hour later on that I could, I've got scheduled to do that or whatever. Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That it's that same rumination cycle that we talked about a bit earlier of, you know, when, when, when kids feel like they are constantly being controlled, and this might be a good time to talk about those internal triggers that we talked about earlier. And, and yep. what are our children's internal triggers really, right? What exactly are they looking to escape from when it comes to the discomfort uh, in their lives? And if we, don't, if we don't really understand that, then we're missing the point. We're missing the big picture, and we will never really fix the problem. You know, these behaviors, these these uh, actions that kids take when they overuse a, a, a technology or you know one distraction or another, they all originate from what we call the needs displacement hypothesis. The needs displacement hypothesis says that when we don't have our needs fulfilled offline, we look for them online. That there's something missing. Okay, so what's missing? 
So about 40 years ago, uh, two researchers came up with what today we call self-determination theory. And self-determination theory is the most widely accepted and studied theory of human flourishing and well-being uh, that's, that's been established. Every psychologist on the face of the earth knows self-determination theory very, very well. And uh, these two researchers, Desi and Ryan, determined that every human on the face of the earth needs three things for psychological well-being. Just like we, I like to call them psychological vitamins. Okay, so just like we have uh, macronutrients for the body, yeah. you know, we have uh, uh, carbohydrates, fat, and protein. Those are the three macronutrients. These are our three psychological vitamins, and they are uh, competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And when we don't have these three things in sufficient doses in our life, just like when we are deficient in vitamins, bad things happen. Right. And the same goes for our psychological well being. When we don't have these three psychological uh, vitamins, bad things happen. So let's talk about these. And I think I can make a pretty good case for why the typical American teenager is severely deficient in these three yeah. psychological nutrients and why the solution to their deficiency is found with what they do online. So let's, let's dissect these. We're here today with Nir Eyal talking about how to help your teens become indistractable. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. The vast majority of people, the vast majority of kids, they're not addicted. They are distracted. And so there are only two places in society where you can tell people, where to go, what to think, how to dress, what to eat, who to be friends with. And those two places are school and prison. How will you make sure that you just watch two episodes? How will you time that? I said, you know, two episodes is 45 minutes. How will you know that that's enough? And she, and so I gave her some time to think and she thought she was gonna pull one over on me. She, she thought she was getting a good deal. She said, how about this daddy? I will set a timer for 45 minutes, because we had this uh, microwave that was below the countertop. And she said, I'm going to use the uh, microwave timer and I can set it for 45 minutes. And that way I know I've had my time. And she's used this same technique until this very day. She's 12 years old now. Now it's even easier. She doesn't use the microwave timer. She says, hey, uh, Alexa, set a timer for 45 minutes or, you know, hey, Siri or whatever. Or uh, she'll, she'll uh, you know, find other ways to actually get the technology to tell her when it's time to stop using the technology. And the reason this yeah. is so beautiful is that there's no more daddy bad guy, right? Yeah. It's not daddy saying, get off your device. It's the device telling her to do something that she asked it to do. And that's why this is such a life skill, right? She's gonna use that skill in high school and college and in her job, this ability to self-regulate by having the technology help her stay focused. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.